Hey everyone, I'm Brian Conley of Hunters HD Gold, and you're listening to Season 2 of Hunters HD Gold Behind the Lens. This podcast takes a deep dive into what it takes to be a match director, manufacturer, sponsored shooter, or just an everyday shooter trying to win his or her first major. So sit back and enjoy this episode of Hunters HD Gold Behind the Lens. Welcome back to another episode of Hunter's HD Gold Behind the Lens. Today, I'm sitting down with Mr. Fancy Pants himself, John McLean. How you doing, brother? I'm doing well. You Thanks know, for be- me. Before we get into the pants story, okay. which is how I you're, know that's what's coming. <laughs> how you're known by. Well, you'll, you'll, we'll get to that in a minute, of course. But, you know, where are you out of? Where do you, where do you, where, what got you into shooting? What got you in? What, why were you interested in doing this? So... I have a very interesting story of, as far as getting into firearms and the fact that when I was younger, uh, my my family had a incident that took place that uh, deemed them to be anti-gun. Oh, wow. They didn't want guns in the house. I, I wasn't even allowed to have toy guns. Like a super soaker was as far as my parents ever got when I was growing up, up right. until that point. No toy guns allowed. Not you know nothing like that. My Is parents so- didn't want me in the military. They didn't want me in law enforcement. Uh, that my mom always said I didn't. I didn't spend all this money to raise you up to get shot. Okay, <laughs> you now know this but- is a pretty. It's a pretty serious incident. It must be. Was this before you were born or after you were born? It was after I was born. Okay. Um, I was probably ooh, I don't know seven or eight or so okay. when the incident took place. Um, but it it was essentially just. Um, it was it was an incident that we'll we'll keep internally and, and among that's, the family, and, and, and that's fine. It's not a big deal. Was it um, one of the four rules of gun safety? Yes. Okay. And I'll leave it at that because the four rules of gun safety. We hear about so much stuff on TV. We hear about so much stuff happening where something happens here, something happens there, and if it's it's ninety nine point nine percent of the time, it's one of the four rules of gun safety. Absolutely, and, and that's why and it's so important to know. It's that. it's funny too because like a lot of the times when you look at people or you or you talk with people that are anti gun or, or have issues with firearms, a lot of the times it's always just about ignorance. Right. And the four safety rules are not about ignorance. Like you have to know the rules and right. then you have to implement them. And know, and even if you, even if you know the rules, like sometimes you need to explain to someone what exactly it means. Like don't yes. point the gun at anything you don't want to destroy. It's like, right. well, what does that mean? Like yeah. what well, means don't point it at your big screen TV. If you want to have to pay for another one, like, exactly. you know, any, yeah. anything like that. And that's why my son, when I was growing up with him, cause I got him um, around firearms about the same time I did in 13. And um, he was a lot younger then. And um, he was fascinated by it. Of course, just like any kid would be. And I, you know, one of the, one of that drove home with him first was keep your finger off that trigger. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not ready. You're not firing that gun. We're in the house. It's unloaded. We, we check that, but don't put your finger on the trigger. Yeah. We're well, not, and, and that's the biggest thing. My, my personal experience too showed what I didn't want to do with my kid when I had my, my first daughter, because, right. um, the complete and utter lack of the ability to know anything about firearms made it super cool. Right. You tell a kid you are not allowed to do this. Right. All they want to do and, is and, that, and that's why I did what I did with my son. I took the I took the excitement away. I normalized it exactly. And when I normalized it for him, like it sounds like what you did for your first kid was a situation where if he goes to somebody else's house, he's not. Oh, let me touch it too. Is because that's what I was worried about more than anything. When they start going to somebody else's house, yep. they have to have that maturity, even at you know nine, ten years old, to understand. This is what we're going to do. Yeah, exactly. So. And, and it was it was funny because like, yeah, it got to a point where um, as far as training with my daughter and stuff, I, I made it very clear to her, like, look, if you ever want to shoot okay. your guns, all you have to do is ask. I will stop what I'm doing. We will load up the car and we'll go and let you shoot them. Right. Like, so there was no excitement behind it anymore. It was like, 
Well, yeah, I've got a gun. I can well, go shoot. My well, dad lets me go shoot. Let's know? back up for a second because you were you shooting co- competitively or shooting before you had your daughter? Uh, yes. Okay. So let me back up even further then. When you first started shooting or even started to get around the industry like you are, where's mom and dad at in this conversation? So mom and dad were in the uh, in in the blackout. <laughs> so so what happened they was lied that to me growing up, I'm a lot of them. Well, you know, I, I turned eighteen, and uh, a, a buddy of mine that I grew up with through elementary school named Eric Warner, um, his okay. dad Steve Warner, shot USPSA matches. He's an ex ex army veteran and all that kind of stuff. Right. Um, and so. Uh, I, I always got into an argument with my buddy Eric because he always talked about how shooting was a sport. And I'm like, dude, it's pointing a gun and pulling a trigger. What's the sport about that kind of thing? And he was like, I'll prove it to you. So <laughs> when I turned 18, uh, we went out shooting with his dad. And the first gun I ever shot was a Colt 45 government model, you know, full size 1911. Without your parents' permission. Without my parents' but permission. 18. But I'm 18. Did you right? move out yet or still living at home? I was still living at home. Okay. And uh, so I went out, shot with him, and it was just so much fun and it was great because I, I knew i was in the hands of someone that was capable that that explained the rules to me like before we mm-hmm. went to the range we're talking about the safety rules and and what to expect and stuff right, right? did so you have that, did you have that fascination oh yeah I, okay because you were told you couldn't i wanted to be an action star okay growing up i okay. mean like like i said my 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 mom was so against me being military law enforcement right. firefighter like anything first responder ems and it's like she wanted nothing to do because with because that was the byproduct of them yeah. keeping that from you, even at 18 years old, you were excited about it. Just like you, you know, exactly Zach was at eight. So, so after I got done shooting that day, um, I started saving up money. And the first gun I ever bought was a Ruger 1022 and I hid it under my bed for a year. Oh, they had no clue. There was a firearm. You, you in the aren't house. just had, had it used to, you used to hide Playboy magazine under a bed and you chose a 22. Yeah, exactly. That's pretty good. I didn't, have, I didn't have to hide Playboy. My dad would be like, Hey, if you're curious, I, I, I came home from school one day to find magazines on my bed. I had a bunch of friends with me when it was just like, Oh God, this is embarrassing. They're like, what, what are those magazines? Are those yours? I'm like, apparently, I don't know. That's you know, awesome. My That's dad a, was very, very cool. My, um, my parents took the totally opposite spectrum of that. <laughs> no, they, we didn't talk. They, they, yeah, they, they were, you know, my, my dad, for the most part, was very much into that, that aspect of like, let's 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 eliminate the excitement and educate him. OK, you know, um, but yeah, so I, I hid my my 1022 under my bed for about a year. And then at that point, just going to the range and planking with the 22 was starting to get a little boring. Um, so his uh, Steve asked me if, if we wanted to go sh- watch him shoot a match. So I was like, yeah, sure, whatever. Like, let's go for a weekend, you know. So I went out. Watched Steve shoot a USPSA match, and I thought that looks freaking fun. What state was this in? So, this was in Nevada. So Nevada I was born state. and raised in Las Vegas. Good deal. Good yeah. Deal. So okay. 36 years up until two right. years ago. Okay. Um, and I, after I left that match, I was just like, man, that looked like a lot of fun. So I started saving up for a handgun. 21. Boom. Buy a handgun. Um, at this point, I told my parents I, I had a rifle in the house and all that kind of stuff, and and they weren't they weren't super excited about it, but it wasn't like a get rid of the gun or you're out of the house kind of thing. It was just Did like, you tell your mom first or your dad. Uh, I told my dad. Did your dad say, let me ease this, your mother into this or did that was he, were you on your own? Uh, you I, know how I, parents, parents want to help their kids when they know something's fixing to come up and try to <laughs> try to burden this pain a little bit before we just blow up the, the subject. So no, I mean, I think it was, I think it was actually pretty much in quick concession. Like okay. I, I told my dad and told my mom, like I think later on the same day. Oh, okay. Um, and like I said, there was no blow up or anything. I, I explained to them, like, look, the gun's been in the house for a year. Nothing's ever happened from it. Um, okay. Here's what I use it for and, and explain to them what I do. And they were just kind of like, well, 
if you shoot yourself, then don't call us. <laughs> kind of thing. Right. Like you go to the hospital, you pay for your own bills, kind of thing. Okay. But they, like I said, they really put a lot of the responsibility on me, and that was something they actually started doing like when I was like 15, 16, like going out and partying and stuff in high school. Mm -hmm. um, not that they encouraged it, but they were very open about like, look, if you're going to go out and do something stupid, don't go full stupid and get something stupid like you know get behind the wheel yeah. or get in the car with someone that's drunk like if you need a ride call us doesn't matter what time we will we will happily come pick it's you that, up kind of i love your parents thought process so far because that's the same way it was was that you know because i said i don't care what you do if you get to a point where you can't drive i don't care if it's two in the morning you better call me yeah if like, you don't call me calling. the world will change for you exactly right <laughs> like, so you don't, so you don't, cool you don't comprehend that. right the the uh amount of pain and and pain in the assery mm -hmm. that can happen from making a change or making a life decision life like decision. getting a dui right. when you're 18 you right. think you're invincible kind of thing right? right um so i went out shot my first uspsa match and at the time i was i was planning on trying to get into law enforcement too so i bought a glock 22 40 okay. smith lesson um so i wanted to shoot major for the competition but then i wanted to have it as a potential duty gun or whatever if i if i got into law enforcement um i went out shot my first match and i'm pretty certain that that day i went home put it up for sale and bought a glock 35 because i was like oh i need a competition pistol now like this okay. is so much fun did, did you see that just because you saw other people shooting at different guns and it made you think that you were missing something or is it just a, what made you just not want to say it how can i modify what i have to do uh, so after after talking with steve and, and learning a little okay. bit more about the firearms and explaining like well you want a longer barrel so you can have a longer sight radius because okay. so your mistakes aren't you know uh exponentially uh magnified right. by having a shorter barrel and stuff like that so i was like okay, okay like once, once i kind of learned a little bit about what i was looking for in a, in a competition pistol right i went for the glock 35 um and immediately started upgrading it of course because the, the gear is what makes the shooter it's not the shooter right? okay. <laughs> so, um and this is this is actually when like uh, uh team glock was just dominating every match they went to like savigny right. at the time was still shooting for them and it was just like he was winning all the matches so right. it was like okay i can win with this gun i just need to do it kind of thing right, right. um so that was kind of my intro into into the shooting world i, I mean I, I, i've been broke since then and that, how old you said that was eight no the 18 got a gun so this that was seems. in 21 you bought a gun so this is 22 23 year old uh yeah yeah okay yeah and uh and, and i've been broke ever since <laughs> <laughs> uh but it's it's been such a cool experience to to watch something that started out as a simple hobby turn into a passion and then turn so into it a was career. a hobby for you to begin with absolutely okay yeah it wasn't but but it was it was weird because it was like it was a hobby but it was one that just like from that moment on everything that i worked for was mm -hmm. to get to the weekend to shoot a bash did you compete in high school or do any kind of sports or anything uh i played baseball okay and that was about it um football just wasn't my jam and again my mom was so anti like anything violent or right. where i could get seriously injured and stuff i couldn't play hockey so i played hockey a couple right. years ago i got into it and stuff like that Did you basically, really? <laughs> basically i'm just trying everything my parents said no because I'm, I'm finding out i'm like man they were wrong hockey's awesome hunting's awesome i got into hunting recently you know well, but let um, me let me back up one quick for your parents now that they know what you're doing with a gun have they changed their attitude towards absolutely a gun? tell me about that story when they had the light bulb go off with them because that's 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 important for our audience to hear who may have family members in the same situation the transition actually happened um after about maybe a year of shooting 
just the weekend warrior stuff. Okay. I asked my dad if he wanted to come out and watch me shoot a match. Wow. And he was like, yeah, sure, let's go. What'd your so, mom think about that? Uh, she didn't care. Okay, so at this like, point, you're like, you're at on this your point, own. I'm a man. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, it's like, I, I got my own go insurance do your man plan, blah, 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 right? <laughs> so we went out to the match, and um, after we were done, when I was talking to my dad about it, uh, he, he was basically kind of like, those were just like everyday normal people mm-hmm. that were all centered around this one activity. I, I, I think that day I was squatted with a lawyer. I had a guy that worked for the trash company. I had, uh, you know, a couple guys that just like own their own little businesses and stuff. And he was just like, they were very polite. They were very kind. They were also very responsible. They were a good environment for their son to be around. Right. Like it wasn't a bunch of hoodlums and, and, you know, whatever. So after that day, my dad went home and basically told my mom what he had experienced as far as like, look, these guys, they're they're looking out for him. They want him to stay safe. They're giving him pointers on how to be better and, and be more efficient. Like he's really practicing and training. He knows what he's doing with his firearm. And that was what comforted my mom enough to be like, OK, fine. If that's the case, then that's the case. And then and then probably maybe two or three years after that, she started asking about like, well, would you take me to the gun range and let me shoot? Wow. So I, I took her to the gun range and, and she had shot years ago um, okay. with my dad before they were separated and stuff. But mm-hmm. but like I said, with the incident, they were like, nope, no guns. Absolutely. Yeah. So now at this point, you know, there's no little kids in the house anymore. And and I think, um, you know, Vegas, not that it was a bad place to go until recently, but, right. uh, you know, it was kind of like opened up her eyes a little bit more about the idea of being able to defend yourself. Do you remember what gun you gave her to shoot for the first time? Uh, it was a Glock 42. Okay. So it was a 380. Um, cool. I know a small frame and everything, but I didn't want her to start with something that was too intimidating. So we well, started I didn't with know that. Well, you started with a 22 just based on the recoil or anything else. No, because she she didn't want to shoot a 22. She was okay. like, I, I know how to shoot a gun. I just okay. haven't shot it in years. Okay. So we started with a 380. And then um, shortly after that, I think I think that year, I ended up buying her uh, that exact same gun for her own personal protection. Um, Did she? Have, so. Was was she in the market for personal protection? Yeah, or, yeah, she was asking really about, cool. about getting a gun for herself. So I was like, "Yep, sure, let's 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 get to it." Wow! So that that started, you know, the the whole basis as far as the family getting supportive about me started all through the it. shooting sports. Yeah, exactly. That's and then, cool. I mean, I've got an interesting story so yeah, as far as where, where I've come from, right? Because <laughs> at that point, um, I. I started getting really into shooting competition. Like it was, er, er, you couldn't talk to me without guns and competition. You found your new conversation because you found the new family in the shooting sports. Right. Absolutely. And I, like I started, I met up with this guy, uh, Ray with and, and we started doing this, uh, trade off. So I would go and film all the matches cause I wanted to have the cool footage and show everyone what I was doing and how awesome I was. And what I started doing when, and I actually had a couple of shooters that I would do this for is I started filming them during the match. I would go home, I would edit all the footage together for that day, burn them a CD of their match run and then their match run at 50% speed so that they could watch and see where they were losing time or things that they can improve on and stuff like that. That was pretty innovative back in the CD-ROM era. So did did you learn that from somebody else or is this all your... your just learned how to do that all about, I, I got a MacBook Pro and continue. basically just went to iMo- iMovie and yeah. I started figuring out and doing the help tutorials and okay. all that kind of stuff and, and figured it out. Um, so I started doing that for them. And in return with Ray, it was, okay, if you do a video for me, we can go do a training session. 
So it became an exchange of goods. Like I'm going to train you if you film me and send me the videos so I can, I can watch them and stuff. So he was, he was officially my first trainer as far as how to become more proficient, like figuring out what exactly I was doing wrong, which was a a terrible way to go. Like don't, if you're going to get into it, then start with a class. Right. Because it took me maybe six to seven months to break so many bad habits that I developed learning how to shoot on my own. Right. To then learn how to correct those mistakes. Uh, and I think now it's definitely different with all the YouTube clips and Instagram and you know all the information that's out there. Right. Um, you could probably get off on a little better start if you were going to do it by yourself. But I still think having a trainer that, that... Like even Tiger Woods had a trainer. Right. Right. So, so there's something behind saying like don't be afraid to to ask for help. Like I, I know Tiger Woods coach can't beat Tiger Woods, but he got him to where he was, which means that he knew what to look for. And then more right. importantly, that's, and that's one of the things about training that I find is a lot of guys can shoot well, but they can't explain why they shoot well or what they're doing in a way that most people can comprehend and break down. Right. And then even then you have to be able to, to specifically pinpoint to someone, here's what you're doing. And then here's how you correct it, right? You can tell someone like, well, you're jerking the trigger. Okay, well, how do you fix that? Well, just don't jerk the trigger. That's not instruction. <laughs> That's just you you know, telling someone they suck right? and then don't suck so much. But like to explain someone, you know, well, you know, tell me what's going on in your head when you're seeing your sight pictures. So explain to me, are you, are you scared of that target? Are you nervous of it? You know, so you have to really break down what it is that's going on with them to then fix the problem okay and that's that's one of the downsides that i think in in today's era is that yeah you, you know like you ever seen that that one target that that's all over the internet that talks about like oh jerking the trigger too much finger on the trigger yes. too much pre- it's I've like seen that. it it kind of sort of works but not really right that's that's not your fix right you really you really need to have someone watch you shoot that knows what to look for to be able to explain to you what you're doing wrong right. and then more importantly, how to fix it. I've seen, I've, it. I've seen some of JJ's training videos where he'll get up next to somebody on the side of them and watch them shoot to see exactly what they're doing. Yeah. You know, and that's pretty cool. And so. you can put, and, and that's, that's what I'm talking about is like, he can see the slightest thing that happens that a normal person mm-hmm. would not be able to determine like, Oh, at the very last second, you're smashing your trigger right. or the very, you know, something that he would see that your general trainer and especially even worse in like a class setting where you got eight people on the line, like you right. can't, you know, unless you spend one-on-one time with every right. single person. But, and I'm sure there's a lot of trainers that can identify that too. I just remember seeing JJ's video recently. Well, and and that, JJ so. was, he's kind of a freak. I, I did a couple uh, outings with him when he lived in Vegas right. and, and within 30 minutes of shooting with him, he gave me like a whole bunch of things that I was doing wrong that I needed to correct. Now, now, how did that make you feel? Cause you've been shooting for a while at that point. How did it, that, you know, is that just one of those things you took as a nugget, like being, this is great or like, damn it. <laughs> you know, I'm having to do this again. I know? took it as it was great because, um, I, I had, I had trained with several people at that point. Pete Rensing was my main trainer that I did when, right. when I started getting into three gun nation and stuff like that. He was the guy that really helped me propel. Like I went from a B class to a GM within a matter of a year after training with Pete on a regular basis. Oh, wow. And, um, even then to have a, a fresh set of eyes, watch me shoot and then explain to me the, the few little things that I was doing at that point I was learning. I had learned to put the ego in check, shut up listen, you got two ears and one mouth for a reason and to implement what they were suggesting on the first try versus arguing with them or fighting with them or, or saying, well, that, that's just how I've done it. So I'm just going to keep doing it my way. Like, mm-hmm. thanks for your input. But, you know, and I, I think the biggest thing that he, he mentioned to me when we were shooting was the idea that I was still keeping the trigger pinned to the rear on difficult shots. So I'd keep it pinned to the rear and then just bring it up to the reset and then pull the trigger again. And he's like, you're losing a lot of time by doing that instead of just 
prep the trigger through your recoil. And then when the sights are good, just finish the trigger press. Instead of now the sights look good, reset. Oh, the sights are off, but now you've pulled the trigger kind of thing. So it was, again, there was one little, at, at, at that time in my career, it was kind of like, like I said, I, I learned to put my ego in check, mm-hmm. which I didn't do with Pete. And that was the, one of the most interesting things was that uh, when I was training with Pete, he had to like beat it into my head for well, like weeks. Because it sounds like the very it. first trainer was almost like the father-son syndrome. He was so close to you and taught you from the very beginning. And then you get to a point where you think you know it all. Well, uh, not in a, not in a disrespectful way, right. but this is the guy I started with. Mm-hmm. Then all of a sudden you hear it from somebody else and, and Pete's going, I've been telling you this stuff for three years. You ain't listening to me <laughs> kind of mentality because you're, you're so immune to the same therapy. Uh, kind of sort of. Actually, what happened was that Ray moved down to Phoenix mm-hmm. out of Vegas. So I didn't have the trainer. Um, that I had anymore. So mm-hmm. I was just kind of like, okay, well, let me just build on what I've developed okay. so far and learn okay. from there. So at that point, it was just kind of like, there was this void that okay. I didn't have someone to train and compete. So at that point, all I was doing was just looking at the guys that were beating me. And my only goal was to beat them. Right. Not how do how do I beat them? It was just get faster, get it more accurate. How do you do that? You know, stuff like that. Who but, was your first person that you kind of put your sights on to beat? My mm-hmm. very first person I ever put my sights on was my buddy, Eric. Okay. Uh, because we started shooting at the same time, but mm-hmm. he had shot more than me. He knew firearms more than me. Uh, and he would beat me at the local matches. So my first sight, sight uh, sights was on him. Once I started beating him consistently, I started going for his dad. <laughs> Once I started beating his dad consistently, then it was, uh, I think Ray was the next guy that I was like, I, I got to beat that guy. Why? Like one day, one day, cause he was, he was the guy that his name was on top. Now, granted, he was shooting open division. So right. of course, you know, that was still when they did like the overall results and stuff, right. but either way, it was like that, that concept of like, if you want to get good, hang out with the people that are better than you. Okay. Because you're going to learn from them. You can ask them questions. You can emulate them. You can, you know, I'm, I'm honestly a great copycat. That's, that's really what I, I think I'm one of my skills is like, even, nice. even when I played guitar, I could watch someone play a song that I'd never been able to figure out, just watch their fingers on the fretboard and then be able to go home and then figure out what they did and be able to play that part of the song perfectly. When did the guitar start? Is that high school or? Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. That would have been, I think probably my freshman year of high school. I figured out that I, I'd been a drummer prior to that. And then I found out the drummers stay in the back and they don't get the chicks. Nice. <laughs> so I picked up a guitar and started playing so that. So you're actually in a band for a while? Uh, yeah, actually, um, straight out of high school. And that was like, it was funny because I shot competition, but I was also in a band full time. And we we actually went on like a nationwide tour all the way out to New York, Florida, Washington. What kind of music? Uh, it was it was like post-emo, screamo, rock kind of stuff. Wow. Yeah. And we actually got signed to Equal Vision Records. Did and, you really? And at that point was when I, I decided to quit the band because I... I seeing this girl that I'd been in love with for years because um, you're a guitar player. Uh, no, but that was a plus. <laughs> I think that was one of the things that made her perk up her ears a little bit and go, Oh, Hey, you know? Um, so I, I quit the band and got married and all, and had a kid and all that kind of stuff, but I was still shooting. And it was funny because shooting was one of the things that, uh, really drove a wedge between me and my ex-wife in, in fact of like, uh, how much money I was spending on bullets and match fees and, and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And where that, where that silliness comes full circle is the fact that, uh, you know, one of her lifelong dreams was to, to go to Paris, France. Okay. And she always said shooting was a waste of time. It was a waste of money and all that kind of stuff. Well, about five years ago, I got invited to go shoot the world shoot in Chateau, France. Oh, wow. So I got to go 
with the blessing of arms corps to help help me pay for my travels and all kind of stuff i got to go to france (laughs) and shoot guns (laughs) and she still hasn't been to paris so so i got to i got to experience her lifelong dream but shooting is what got me there gotta have patience well yeah they they would say uh what success is the best revenge and it it was very very sweet to be able to be like look at this Uh, my waste of time hobby is has gotten me to france right but wow so when you're you went you, you the band. I'm still stuck on that for a second because I was I'm intrigued by that. Just this is this is about me at this point. <laughs> you you know how many people were you know, band members? Was it like a, a just the normal four people back in the day, or is it like a we were know, a five piece, five piece? Yeah, so okay. drummer, bass, singer, and then two guitars. And you traveled all over the United States doing we did. stuff. Didn't yeah, you? yeah. Wow. I, I could have been arrested in so many states for doing stupid shit. But yeah, I luckily didn't. So you did the normal <laughs> hardcore kind of stuff, partying after the show and everything. Else. Oh yeah. Oh. Sweet. Yeah. And and honestly, it was a it was a good experience for me, especially around that age, um, because it got a lot of my rock star stuff out early enough. That, did like, your parents like you being the rock star? Uh, they did. Okay. They were very supportive. That's so um, cool. I, I, it was like I said, you know, like guitar playing for me was almost like a, a, as much of a drug as as um, as shooting was, even to the point that like I was I was given a car by my sister when she was old enough to buy her own. So I got her old car. And I hadn't got my driver's license yet. It was a stick shift, so I hadn't quite learned how to drive it yet. And then we're getting ready to go on tour, and there was an amp head that I really, really wanted. It was a Bogner Ubershaw. Very, very rare head. I found one on eBay for like $2,100, mm-hmm. and I begged my parents to find some sort of way to get, get it for me. And their deal was like, we'll sell your car and get you the amp head. And I was like, deal. Wow. So I gave up my step. first car ever yeah. to get this amp head <laughs> and, 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 and cabinet. So I had a, I had a Marshall four by uh, four by 10, no, four by 12 uh, cabinet with this Uber shawl. Mm-hmm. Um, you still collect guitars? I don't. Okay. Uh, you know, that, that was some, I still have my, uh, not my very first guitar or anything like that, but one of, one of the guitars, it was, it became my primary guitar when I was on tour. I still have that. Uh-huh. Um, I refuse to sell that. I've sold all my other gear off. But this guitar is, uh, it's, it was a Gibson Les Paul studio, um, and it's got such great character. So uh, when we would perform, you know, I'd jump around and thrash so much right. that I would rip the screws out of the body, like on a nightly basis. Wow. So I got so sick of it that I actually JB welded the screws into the body, <laughs> and the, the strap is like permanently attached to it. I can't remove it. <laughs> um, and then while I was on tour, I had lost the volume knobs just randomly throughout the experience. Mm-hmm. So like... I didn't, we didn't just like go into guitar center and buy new knobs or anything like that. Like other band members be like, Oh, I got this extra one. So I actually have a fender volume knob as my bridge pickup volume control. Right. And then I've got a old, it it was kind of a Les Paul copy Ibanez that's gold as the other knob, the tone control knob. Right. So I've got two of the original black Gibson knobs and then one fender knob and one Ibanez gold knob. I mean, it, it looks like you'd look at it and be like, what the hell kind of Frankenstein monster put this thing together? But well, it's, it's, <laughs> it sounds like your pants, but we'll get into that momentarily. <laughs> Let's take a quick commercial break. This is one of our sponsors. Perfect. <laughs> this week's podcast is brought to you by Kana Gold. Kana Gold is a premier lifestyle brand for those who work hard and play harder. 
There are many hemp companies out there that get lost in the crowd, but Conagold sets the gold standard with its premier line of products. When traveling all around with a magical mystery tour to different matches, I travel around with lots of different flavors, including pink grapefruit, candy apple, and vanilla cherry. Make sure to stop by and get some for yourself. They are all zero calories, zero sugar, use organic hemp, and are THC and CBD free. Competitive shooters love them because there's no shakes, no headaches, and no crash. When you order from conagoldhemp.com, make sure to use discount code HUNTERSHD for another 20% off. So we were just discussing during the commercial break how he actually, you know, got noticed by one of the producers and everything else. That's, you know, being noticed by somebody like that, realizing that, you know, what you're doing in the band is making a big difference. And did you ever get to open up for anybody that was just amazing to you? Like, that was like, you just like, Oh wow. I'm opening for this band. Well, so that, that festival we were just talking about in Vegas, uh, I think it was called the extreme thing at the time. Right. Um, that was where we got to open for Goldfinger and Goldfinger was a band that like, as I was coming up into the scene, it was like newfound glory, Goldfinger, less than Jake, uh, you know, simple plant, all those bands, Mm -hmm. blink One Eight Two is huge. Yep. Um, were like guys that I used to learn their songs. And then like by learning their songs, I would learn different techniques that I then incorporated into our music. Okay. Um, like I said, I'm a great copycat. Right. So I just do what they were doing, but in a different key and, and in a different formation and, and route and whatever. Um, but yeah, so we, we got done opening for that show. About an hour later, we we're at the merch table and John Feldman from Goldfinger came over and asked for a CD. So yeah. we went, took him to the RV. We let him listen to it in our RV and he took it home with us. Um, a couple months after that, uh, a group of guys out of uh, Phoenix named Versus the Mirror um, got signed to Equal Vision Records and they asked us to come play their showcase. So we went, we opened for them and we were like the, they were the next, they were the main headliners. So we opened right before them because they, they really liked us. We really liked them. They were, they were great, awesome guys. And like we got off the stage and their rep from Equal Vision immediately walked over and was like, I need your guys' contact info. As soon as I get back to California, I'm writing up a contract to sign you guys. Wow. So we signed with Equal Vision Records. And then like, I think maybe a week or two after that, Feldman called and said, wow. I want to produce your next album. And we were like, Oh, we just signed with Equal Vision, man. Like, so sorry. You know, it's like, oh, can we take it back now? But uh, so that was always the joke. Because we were like, what if, oh, I bet John Feldman would want to get it. Yeah. He did the use and he did the story of the year. And we're like, well, we'd be right up his alley. And sure enough, we were. But we just, wow. <laughs> a little too late. But, um, saying, and again, that was about the point where, where I quit right. um, and started working a regular job like a chump. Did it just blow everybody's mind that you got finally the record deal and you're wanting to get out? A little bit. A little bit. Because um, I could see that being like, Dude, we've been trying to do this for four years. We got it. And it's like, you're gone. What, what the hell? Yeah. But I mean, you know, at that time, my priorities have changed a little bit. Um, okay. However, incorrect or correct. I mean, I'll, I'll say this. Like, I don't I don't regret anything because I wouldn't be where I am today without the decisions I made. Right. Um, there was, does part of me always wonder what would have been like, well, yeah, part of me. But like, I'm not at all like unhappy where I am now knowing, well, I could have. I could have been. So, it's like, uh, right. if anything, I'm I'm still. Happy well, to me, it helps so. explain why you're so outgoing because you you're used to being on a stage. Yeah, you grew up being on a stage, and the crowds don't bother you. Different people oh. don't bother you. You go right to it, and you embrace whatever's around you. And that's what I notice you doing on the range constantly, yeah. which is I'm I'm a big fan of that because I'm kind of the same way. I try but, exactly, <laughs> but I never had the rock star you know opportunity. Um, before we get off that subject, is there anything? 
in that industry that caught you by surprise that said, Ooh, it's not like this. And you know, I didn't think it'd be like this. I did not, I did not fully comprehend how much time you're going to spend in an RV with four other dudes that you cannot get away from. Like if you're pissed off, if you get into a fight with someone, Mm -hmm. guess what? It's 12 hours until the next venue. So you guys better just go to the opposite sides of the RV and huff and puff all you want in silence because and this would happen you know, sometimes. Oh um, yeah. I mean, naturally, yeah, you, you know, you got five guys together. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, um, wow. And, and that was actually one of the things too, that kind of, kind of turned me off to the, the idea of doing the music industry thing was just how much time was spent in art. Like I loved performing mm-hmm. as soon as I was on stage and, and, and being able to talk, like, I remember I used to be, I, I used to walk around like my, my band members would spend a lot of time in the RV before the show mm-hmm. and then come out just to help set up play the set and then like go to the merch table for five or 10 minutes and then go right. back to the RV with the new groupies or whatever they, they had. I was the guy that like, I walked around the crowd. I talked with people. I stayed out of the RV. Like the only reason I'd ever go to the RV was to go get someone like a t-shirt or something mm-hmm. like that and whatever. And like, it was even to the point, like I used to walk up to people and ask them who they were there to see. And if they'd ever heard of my band, not saying that I was in the band, like, have you ever heard of this Brown Eyed Deception band? Which, yes, Brown Eyed Deception. I know what it means now, but <laughs> we didn't at the time. Very, um, very nice. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and, and, you know, we talked to them and stuff. And it would it'd be funny because I'd, 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 you know, I'd be like, you ever heard of this, this band from Vegas, Brown Eyed Deception? They'd be like, uh, no, we haven't. We're just here to see this band. I'm like, dude, I heard those guys suck. Like, oh my God, they're fucking terrible. Like, and I heard, awesome. I heard all of them are assholes, especially the lead guitarist. Like, I, I heard that guy's just a fucking prick. <laughs> And then, like, I'd be in the conversation, and like, the band would would finish, and I'd be like, "Oh, hold on a second. And then I go upstairs, stand up, and plug in my my pedals and stuff, and play <laughs> the watch, set. You'd watch their expression, when yeah. Start up, would, but that was, I think, that was one of the things that that helped grow our band. I mean, we we almost statistically doubled our fan base every time we visited a city. Wow. So there were some shows we'd go there and we only knew like one or two people that were there to see us. And then the next show, there'd be four. And the next show, we'd be eight. And the next thing you know, we're, you know, the majority of the crowd is there to see us. Wow. And I think it was because of the fact that like, it wasn't just the music, but it was the interactions. Like, I think people will fall in love with the band before they fall in love with the band's music. Right. A lot of times. Like sometimes, obviously, the, the music is what hits you. Um, and especially if it's what becomes popular very fast. Right. But, you know, if you've... You know, you take any artist, like a lot of the times you hear all the stories of people that knew them when they were little. Right. And it's not that it's not their interactions of, oh, yeah, you know, he said hi to me and took a picture with me and then went on his way. They had a relationship. They 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 talked a lot. They they uh-huh. traveled to watch them play. They traveled to watch them support. You know, they sold their CDs. They helped them sell merch and stuff. Right. And so that was kind of what I took from it was the idea of like, look, if you're if you're out there, if you're interacting with the people uh-huh they'll fall in love with you as a person and therefore their love for your music will well, and, grow exponentially. And that takes us right into the gun industry because mm-hmm. for what you're doing now, it's the same thing. I met you in 2019 at SHOT Show and um, Keita said, meet me over here at the Arms Corps booth. I want to introduce you to you know, mm-hmm. a guy named John. And um, I got there, I think probably 10 minutes before she did. And I'm looking around, I didn't know who John was. And, you know, she, and I said, I called Keita. I said, I'm here, but I don't know, you know, who, who is who. She goes, look for the guy in the crazy pants. I said, all right. And that's when I introduced myself to you. Then Keita came up. And that's when we actually first talked for the first time. But I kind of felt I gave Arms Corps a chance mm-hmm. just based on our relationship that we had just from talking. Because it's the same thing. You get to meet somebody and then you see what kind of product they have next to right. them. So that's kind of a cool process. So when did you get into a regular job, I take it, and then go into the farms industry. What does that look like? 
Uh, so uh, after I quit the band, I, I hopped around to a couple jobs, and then um, I eventually landed a job at Bally's, the casino there, as a lifeguard. And <laughs> okay. I know, right? This is this is. <laughs> I need to put a disclaimer for the next twenty. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so I started as a lifeguard. Um, obviously, like I said, my, my personality at and yeah, Bally's. Yep. Okay. And with with as, as involved I got with the company, as far as like. Uh, the, the medical side and the training side and stuff like that. Um, I think, I think I was maybe four or five months into working for Bally's. I was offered the, um, assistant pool manager or not, not pool manager, um, uh, assistant supervisor for Bally's. Okay. So I would work, you know, three or four days as the lifeguard and then work two or three days as the supervisor, depending on what the schedule was. And then after about three or four months after that, I was offered the full-time position to be a pool supervisor. And I implemented like a whole new training regimen. I, we did, I, I did a complete overhaul as far as the lifeguard training. Um, and, and, uh, I, I kind of did like these surprise tests right. where I would go out, um, randomly. And so many people don't know this. A lot of the pools down the strip are three and a half feet across the board. Right. Valleys is one of the few pools. And I don't know if it still is, but they were one of the full few pools on the strip that went past three and a half feet. We actually had a 12 feet deep pool. Okay. And, um, so the, if someone is drowning, like it's not like you can just wad out there and pick them up and drag them to the edge. You had to know right. how to swim. You had to know how to submerge yourself and, and get a submerged body out and stuff like that. So I used to do these random little tests with lifeguards um, where we had this. It was a 12 pound brick. It's what they use for the lifeguard tests and all kind of stuff. And basically, I just walk out the pool and I throw it in the water um, during busy times. And it would be a timed event where the lifeguard had to see and reckon. And the reason I did it during busy times is because if I walked out there when it was empty, they all saw me walking out with the brick. Mm -hmm. But instead, what I would do is when it was super busy and they're busy scanning the water and scanning the deck and all that kind of stuff, I'd just nonchalantly walk out and throw the brick in the water. And the lifeguard had to recognize that the brick was in the water within the, a minute and then initiate the emergency plan. So they had to get up. They had to blow the whistle three times. They had to dive into the water. They had to submerge, grab the brick, and then bring it over to the edge. Um, and if this did not happen? Uh, there, there would be education afterwards okay. Okay. and explaining why. Or it, it was kind of like a sit down of explaining, like, so tell me what what kept you from seeing the brick? Right. Or what kept you from, you know, performing the... the so definitely a plan of action on that. So nothing, yeah. nothing of not being certified or anything. Exactly. So and then the other thing I would do, too, is that um, uh, we had a CPR dummy. And throughout you'd have your cycle that you have to go like do towel bins and readjust chairs and all that kind of stuff. Um, the other thing I would do is I would take the CPR dummy and I'd go put them in random spots and I would just sit there and wait. And the first lifeguard that ever saw the dummy would immediately be on the, on the clock of being like, go like, here you go. You've, you've come across an unconscious person. What are you going to do? And I would make them do the whole rescue operation as far as, They'd have to call for help over the radio, and it, it was always always. And you did was this training, when the pool but, was busy as well. Yeah. So, yeah. what do the guests think when this is happening? I can understand a brick not being a very dramatic situation. <laughs> well, it could be, but they understand. But when you got somebody run into a dummy, and somebody may not realize it's a dummy, and they start. Uh, gathering, it was, it was they, pretty obvious they, it was a dummy. Oh, okay. It was, it was a know. big blue chest, and that's it, and okay. then a, a plastic oh, head. It wasn't a full body. Not a full body okay. or anything, okay. but I just. Um, so yeah, they had to do everything. They had to, they had to call for help over the radio. They had to, uh, tell someone to bring the AED over and we had a training AED, uh, for that purposes. And then I would run them through different scenarios as far as like, they would basically say, you know, like, okay, um, you know, I'm, I'm checking for the airway. Right. Airway's open. Okay. I'm checking for breathing. You don't hear breathing. 
Okay, perform right. two rescue breaths. Now I'm checking for circulation. You feel a heartbeat. Okay, I'm going to continue rescue breaths until EMS arrives. Mm -hmm. So, and I would change the scenario up every time. Wow. Um, so I did that for a couple of years. And then one day I was getting gas and a car accident happened at the intersection that I was in. Okay. I ran out to the cars with my life, my, you know, lifesaver <laughs> fanny pack. <laughs> I just uh, checked on the people and they were fine. But in that point, I realized. I had a very, very limited amount of knowledge about medical first aid that if there was something else that could potentially be going on that could progress to a life threat, right. I didn't know how to treat it. Like, okay, well, let me know when you go unconscious and then I can do something about it. I didn't like that feeling. And I was getting ready to have my first daughter. So I actually decided to sign up for an EMT basic course. It wasn't to get a job. It was just for me to grow my knowledge in, in emergency medicine in case right. anything ever happened to my daughter. And during that course, you have to do clinicals. So you had to do an ER rotation. You had to do a labor and delivery rotation, which I didn't deliver any babies. Thank goodness. It's still to this day, actually, after eight years in EMS, I didn't deliver a single baby. I yeah. push them back in, wait till uh, you get to the ER. Yeah. Somebody, <laughs> like, I'm tapping out. Somebody come in. That's the baby. Push, push. I am. It won't go back in. <laughs> exactly. Um, so I, I did that. And then on that rotation, you also had to do two, uh, two, uh, two shifts, 12 hour shifts with the fire department and they put you on the rescue. And that was where I fell in love with EMS. Wow. So I went from basic and I immediately signed up for the intermediate course so I could start IVs, give certain medications and, and just get the next level training. Mm -hmm. And then I applied for American medical response, which is the private ambulance company in Vegas. Okay. Um, and after about four or five months, they, they called and, and offered me a, a chance to go and, and get the job because you still have to pass a physical test right. and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, so when I got hired by them, worked for them for eight years and, uh, and still were shooting on the side, still well. shooting on the side. Yep. Okay. And, uh, after about eight years or so, um, Martin, the CEO of, of arms Corps, was, uh, I was starting, there was start, I was starting to, to help out more with the company and go to like some of the training events, okay. um, to, to help teach about the products and stuff like that. And that started, really coinciding and, or having a, an issue with AMR side because I was working, I was a full-time employee. So I was getting benefits and whatnot, but I wasn't really putting in the full-time hours. So eventually came up that like, Hey, you know, we're going to have to transition you to part-time and you're going to lose your benefits and all that kind of stuff. Well, that kind of sucked. When I told Martin about it, he didn't like the idea of one of his pro shooters, you know, the guys that was on one of his teams, um, having to work a job and then not being able to go shoot matches or train or practice or anything like that. So that was where he kind of like approached me about, getting into the firearms industry for a job, mm -hmm. um, which I, I took. And then I actually, you know, I was very, very lucky in the fact that uh, I quit working at AMR about 10 days before the October 1st shooting happened. Wow. So uh, I was driving back from Hanga Nationals in St. George mm -hmm. when my phone started blowing up with, you know, people texting me like, hey, what's going on? Like, do you know what's going on? Blah, blah, blah. And mm -hmm. I was, what are you talking about? I'm like, just getting out of the gorge, don't know. And they started sending me articles about the active shooter and stuff. Um, and there, there was a legit moment of me having to, to really have a conversation with myself about like, well, do I just show up at station, like offer to like sign a one day contract and just throw me on a rig or whatnot. But the flip side was like, man, I've just, I've been up all day. I've been shooting match. I've, I've, I'm driving now. It's, mm -hmm. you know, 10, 11 o'clock at night. I'm fucking dog tired. Right. And I don't know if I'm actually going to be an asset or if I'm going to be a liability. Right. Like, I don't want to make a mistake or anything like that, especially in a high stress situation. So I, I opted to, to not do anything about it as far as like me personally. Um, obviously, I checked in on all my my old partners and stuff that I worked with, make sure they were doing good and stuff. Did but, you feel guilty because you wasn't there? 
Uh, a little bit. A, a little part of me does. Yeah, um, but the other part of me is was comfortable in the fact of knowing I knew my coworkers, so I knew the city was in good hands. I knew okay. the patients were going to get taken care of as far okay. as people that I knew that that were working that night. And, right. and I mean, I think everyone went in and got called in. Right. And I mean, uh, the, the other side was when I quit, it wasn't necessarily like, a, oh, thank you so much for the opportunity. I've learned so much. It was kind of like, a, here's my letter of resignation. Here's my badge. Peace. I'm out kind of thing. Yeah. With my operations manager. So I was also kind of like, well, even if I did show up, what if he was just like, get the fuck off the property? Right. Like, you're not allowed to be here kind of thing. Right. Um, I said, it's not that we left on bad terms, but it wasn't the best of terms. And right. it was actually funny because uh, a couple months after that, I ran into my operations manager uh, while I was ice skating with my daughter. And uh, we we sat down and, and chatted for a bit. And he explained to me, he's like, look, he's like, I didn't have any problem with you shooting matches and stuff, but the company did. And so I had to address it kind of thing. So he right. made it very clear. Like, this was not a personal decision. I wasn't trying to attack you. Okay. you know? Um and then he asked me to join his hockey league, his beer league team. And so we started playing <laughs> hockey together. That's how that, that happened. But um, yeah, so I mean, there, there was definitely a part of me that was still... And I actually asked him about that too. I was like, hey, what would, what would you have done if I showed up? And he's like, I would have just thrown your ass on a rig and sent you out. Like, wow. he, he knew the kind of EMT that I was. He, right. I, I, had, I had multiple customer service awards within the city where people wrote in like talking about the experience they had as, with their crew members that, that took care of their family. And I was on a couple of those crews. Right. Um, and stuff like that. We actually we actually did a an event. It was a training event at Sunrise Hospital, where uh, they were doing like a, a general public education course. So the, the the public could just show up and they would talk about what they do in the hospital. And the CEO was up doing a speech, and then he would start faking a heart attack. At which point, me and my partner went in, and we were the ones that were scheduled to do it, and went in and and teched the call up until the point where we walked them out of the room, and then they explained, okay, that was just so you guys could see what. Right. EMS is like out on the, on the street. But the, the, the comical thing was that, you know, a, a heart attack is an ALS call. It's an advanced life support call. So the paramedic is supposed to tech the call. They would be in the back. They would give the medications and all kind of stuff. But mm -hmm. during the whole interaction, uh, my partner, who I was very comfortable with uh, as far as working, he was very comfortable with me and my skill set. His name is Leon Hall. Still works for AMR. Great guy. Right. Um, I basically did the whole assessment while he was doing the treatments. And after we got done, uh, my our general manager of AMR was like in the hall and he's like, why haven't you signed up for paramedic school yet? <laughs> he's like, you already know all this stuff. Like, it'd right. be easy for you to do it. I'm like, right. yeah, but that's another year and a half of schooling and I hate school. So, right. uh, you know, I'm happy where I am. But um, so Arms Corps became pretty big for you. Yep. And Arms Corps is international. They so, are. So yeah. Did it open up a lot of international travel for you? Uh, some. I, I got to go. I, I had the pleasure of going to the Philippines about two years ago um, mm -hmm. for, for about three weeks. I got to experience that. Uh, I've been to Paraguay to, to do some product training as far as um, showing people what, what our products are and stuff mm -hmm. there. Um, and then, of course, the, the France trip was, was really cool to be able to go there as a, as a shooter right. um, to experience that. But, Arms Corps is real big in IPSC. Yes. They're huge in the ammo side of it. Um, some people may say they're the reason why power factor is so much higher based on that. Do you have any insight to their power factor, you know, where it's at? Have they, have they ever thought about making power factor lower being a lead, leading that charge to the IPSC? Do you have any insight on that? Cause I've hear stuff about that all the time because, you know, you talk about power factor here in the States and we're trying to compare everything for IPSC mm -hmm. and, you know, I, IPSC pretty much controls the ammo side on that on that level so i didn't know if, if there's any ever been any discussions that you've ever known about that before no not really um you know when you look at the the firearms market as a whole 
the competition side is a very, very, very small percentage. Okay. And, and that was one of the big eye-openers for me, being a competition shooter primarily. Right. The first time I went to SHOT Show and I had a conversation with someone and I, I mentioned the name Rob Latham and they didn't go, you met Rob? I was right. like, the fuck's wrong with you? You don't know who Rob Latham is? They're like, no, I've never heard of him. Like, wow. Okay, that's weird. You know, yeah. like the guy has been winning titles before I was born exactly. and, and stuff. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think for the most part, like, I'll, I'll say I, I got shoot the, the 40 that I shoot here in the States makes major power factor. Um, mm. But I don't think it would make major power factor out of my gun, at least in Ipsic. Okay. I think it's supposed to be like 170 is power factor in, yes. in Ipsic. Yeah. And typically I, I run anywhere from one, 168 to 170. Okay. Um, how do you feel about major power factor? You think it should come down? Are you part of that discussion or are you just kind of floating it around with it? How do you feel? I think if major power factor was not a thing anymore, you would just see everyone switch over to nine, um, which I don't think would be a bad thing. And, and I know the, uh, the argument is always, well, it's, it's more difficult to enter the recoil and all that kind of stuff. You, well, okay. Yeah. Kind of sort of that's true, but accuracy is king, especially in our game. It doesn't matter how fast you are. If someone else shoots more alphas than you, they could potentially take you down. Um, the other reason for me why I would be okay with them eliminating major power factor is the, is the fact that nine is cheaper. So in order for someone to want to be competitive and shooting something like, cause like limited division, I think is probably one of the, the nicer divisions to shoot because, you know, if, if you're just getting started and you only shoot production, cause all you can afford is a nine millimeter, that kind of sucks. Like yeah. you're at a disadvantage. You have to do more reloads and all that kind of stuff. Like you're a brand new shooter having to go and negotiate a stage mm -hmm. is difficult enough. Now right. you're telling them that they have to make sure they don't forget their reloads, that they don't have makeup shots or as many makeup shots on steel and stuff like that. Right. That's just, I think that's a lot to scare someone that's brand new to the sport. Mm -hmm. um, whereas if you just open it up to saying, look, you can shoot limited. Now you can have as many bullets as you can fit in your mag. And as long as it fits in the gauge and all that kind of stuff, I think right. it would open up uh, less fear uh, of brand new shooters coming out and giving it a try because now the only disadvantage they have is just their experience, not experience and equipment and scoring and all that kind of stuff. And but I, I think that's uh, an argument for people that get paid to argue about that stuff. I just kind of show up. And well, the reason I ask is because of arms score, because do you think that you, you said it's cheaper? Do you feel that it's not as safe? Oh, based on know. based on doing stuff that's past semi specs, all this stuff to the guns and stuff. Or you just, you, you I never thought about that. Okay. Just curious yeah. based on the ammo side of it. I don't know if it's even a, a, an issue based on anything being talked about or anything that you would have access to. So. No, no. I, I mean, I think the majority of our, our, I mean, shit, even right now with, with primers being as short as they are, all kind of stuff, we're just trying to <laughs> get as many primers as we can to fill the shelves for, right. for people. But, um, you know, to let them to keep, keep shooting, especially all the brand new gun owners and whatnot. But, right. um, no, nah, I mean, I, th I think the competition world as far as arms. Now, don't get me wrong. Martin loves the, the competition side. It's where he, he, he was a competition shooter at one point. So he completely right. understands why he has a team and, and why he wants his team to do well and stuff like that. Right. Um, but at the same time, when, when you're looking at it from a CEO standpoint, he kind of looks at it like, well, I'm making a bunch of money right. through the distributors, box stores, general shooting, you know, stuff like that. Right. You know, worrying about what 1% of the market is is doing is not a huge Very enough, uh, fair enough. Well, I have lots of people all the time ask me. I've got colorful shirts. I've got colorful shoes, but I don't have colorful pants. I've been asked a lot of times about, why don't you get colorful pants? And my response is always the same. John McLean's already got that covered. I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to take that away from John. So when did it start with the pants? Because that's what so many people will walk around. They don't even know your name, but they'll, I've heard people say, it's the guy with there with the pants, you know, tell me about that for a sec. Cause there's gotta be a story behind this besides, 
I was a rock star and I want attention again. I mean, and that could be it. You might, it might just be attention driven like I am. I'm attention driven. But, so what's the process of your um, pants? So a lot of people that just know me from seeing me on the range and anything like that, especially in the early days when I first started wearing them, instantaneously thought, oh, he's just trying to get sponsors or he's just trying to be noticed or just wants to get pictures taken of him or da 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 da. And that's, that's not at all why I started doing it. It was a nice byproduct. Um, but really what happened to me was that when I, when I decided that I wanted to take competition shooting a little bit more seriously, I started uh, uh, incorporating some companies along with my name. So Rifle Dynamics was the first company that I think ever... T- a 10A Performance, Hilton Yam, actually was the first guy I think that actually sponsored me with gear. And he, he gave me some sights and whenever I needed 1911 parts and stuff, like I use his flat triggers and all my single stacks. Right. Um, he was the first guy to, to throw me some gear and say, you know, let me know what you think. After that, uh, Rifle Dynamics, which is an AK company out of Vegas, um, at the time was owned by Jim Fuller. Mm-hmm. And they wanted to see what the AK can do in the three-gun world. So we built a 5.56 NATO AK for me to shoot in three-gun just because 5.45 and 7.62 was very difficult to find ammunition that mm-hmm. wasn't bi-metal that right. I could shoot at steel targets. Um, so I, I started doing that, and that was where I kind of started getting a little bit more serious into right. the competition shooting and, and taking it more seriously. And what I found was that at that point, I started getting a little bit harder on myself as far as my performance goes. And I didn't, I didn't know how to do what Elsa said best, let it go. So if I had a mistake, I'd get pissed off at myself. And instead of dropping it, I'd carry it over with me to the next stage. And I try and catch up ground where mm-hmm. I would then make another mistake. Cause I'm trying to go too fast or anything like that. And it would just snowball. Right. Right. And at that point now, three stages in of snowballing, I'm fucking miserable. Match is done. And no one wants to be around me because I'm just an a-hole at this right, point. Right, right. I love how I drop the F-bomb, but I say a-hole. It's quite okay. <laughs> <Either way>. um, <laughs> so the pants, I bought them because Handgun Nationals was coming up. This is when it was still in Vegas. And my mindset was like, you know, even if I were to win Nationals, my life does not change. I don't win a huge purse like a PGA Tour Pro or something like I'm still going to go to work on Monday and do what I'm going to do for the week until the next local match comes up. Right. right. Um, so I had to figure out a way. How, how can I remind myself to have fun when I'm out at the range? The pants came in as a mental reminder to me. Wow. How serious could you really be taking yourself right now? Because look at what you're wearing for everyone to see. Right. And, and another good byproduct of it was that it, um, if I had a bad stage, I'd get to the next bay and the ROs would just be like, oh my God, what the, f-? you know, <laughs> it got me out of the match mentality. It got me into laughing at myself. It got me into talking a little bit about it, you know, something that wow. was off, off brand. Yeah. So if I had a great stage, cool. I forgot about it because now we're talking about my pants. If I had a shit stage, yeah. cool. I forgot about it because now I'm talking about my pants and I, I kind of reset for the next stage instead of being pissed off of what I did. Right. So. Uh, again, a lot of people think that it was just for attention. That right. was a, it was a good pri- byproduct, but it was actually for me personally. The only reason I wore the pants was for a selfish ass reason is because I needed to get out of my head as far as being I'm, I'm an A type person. I want to be competitive. Right. But you got to learn that mental side of it. You know, that, that that's something that's very interesting about the sport is, you know, how much time do people spend? Going to the range and shooting. How much time do they spend dry firing at home? How much time do they? who practice it matches their execution of stage plans and stuff like that. Like right. the majority of training, I think for most shooters is almost 80, 90, maybe even hundred percent about shooting the gun. And yet any other sport you talk about, they always say it's like 
half, if not more mental. So at us as shooters, we focus so much on the physical side of pulling the trigger. Mm-hmm. How much mental training are you actually doing as a shooter? Probably not much. Right. And, and even then, a lot of the times, a lot of people will have that stinking thinking. Like there's some people that are just like, it doesn't matter what happens on the stage. They come back and they tell you about every single mistake they just made on that stage. And you're just kind of like, well, that's great, man. But what did you like about the yeah, stage? What did you, what did you, what did you well? execute? What did you yep. do well? What, what has you feeling good yep. about what you did on that stage? That's what you should be focusing on. Worry about what you need to work on after the match. That's right. You know, um, and, and that was probably one of my, my biggest uh, points where when I, when I hit GM, it was a complete accident. Like I, I went to a classifier. I shot the stage really well. I actually, I actually classified GM. My final score that I put in was shooting limited minor. <laughs> <laughs> it was very, I was like, oh my God, I made GM. What the hell? Like, Jesus Christ. Okay. Um, but once you make that GM card, you're just like, well, that's it. I'm a master in everything else that I'm ever going to try. Right. And there's still masters that are GM shooters, but they just don't shoot classifiers or da, 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 you right. know, stuff like that. So it was like, okay, you're, you're in that elite group now where you've got to, you've got to perform. Right. And when I started plateauing again as a shooter, um, it was kind of like, well, not to say that I know everything, but I do know enough of what's going on that I should be getting better and I'm not. So what's different? And that was where I decided, okay, uh, I actually had a, a conversation with a guy named Nick Sadie out of Phoenix, um, another phenomenal shooter. And I actually, I, I think he's a grandmaster in all the, all the disciplines wow. uh, across the board. And we, we had a conversation and he brought up the fact that he was like, look, how much, how much time do we spend on the mental game? And yet we always talk about how 80% of the sport or 70% is mental mm-hmm. and we never focus on it. So I started looking up books, um, to try and, and, fix the mental side of my game and see if there was anything going on. And the one book that I, I still will pull out and peruse through and kind of reread sections of is uh, with winning in mind by Lanny Basha. Yep. And it was funny. Cause I, I thought I was a pretty positive dude. Like I was having fun. I'm wearing the goofy pants. I'm, I'm doing well at these matches and all kind of stuff. But after I read that book, it was just kind of like, Oh, Nope. I've been doing that wrong. I've been doing this wrong. I've been doing this wrong. You know, that's like the whole aspect of like, you yep. Focus on what you did well, not on what you've messed up. And then, you know, uh, just the mental side of like, and it was actually when I was getting ready for world shoot too, it was that idea of practicing shots so much that you're never afraid to take them because you've practiced it. You know how to execute it. You've proven that you can execute it. So mm-hmm. when I was getting ready to go to world shoot, um, I knew they were going to have no shoot targets at insane distances that I've never shot before. And that would be intimidating. So I actually spent probably three or four weekends where I took a Ipsic size targets and I put a no shoot and I only gave myself maybe like five or six inches of the top of the target. Right. And I started at five yards and I would do like 20 to 30 rounds guarantee from the draw, pull it up, send to cool. They're all, they're all on the Brown. None of them in the white. Right. Then I went to seven yards. And then I went to 10 yards and then I went to 12 and then I went to 15. I went all the way out to, to 40 yards wow. shooting that same target until I did not miss a shot. Because then when I went to world shoot, I was not afraid of a target. At no point did I think like, oh my God, that's such a hard shot. It was, mm-hmm. you know how to make it. So just do what you need to do to, to execute that shot. Mm-hmm. And the, the comical thing about my world shoot experience was that you know, World Shoot has so many insane movers and swing. I mean, th- we're talking about those, that kind of presentation, a swinger with a no shoot at 35 yards. Right. And you're having to shoot it like on the swing. Um, that entire World Shoot match, I did not miss a single shot on a moving target. 
I had nine misses on static targets that were wide open, <laughs> but I didn't miss a single moving target wow. because like the confidence was there knowing it. And it was, right. I think on those open targets, I was overconfident and thinking that's an easy shot and not still giving it the discipline that it needed. Right. But again, that was, it was that mental side of just having the confidence and not being terrified. I think most people, when they, you know, how many times when you are walking stages, do you see people like talk about, Oh, that no shoot that's a hard target. And then most people, like the very first shot that they send is the one that they jam into the no shoot. And right. that's because as they're coming up to it, they're like, don't screw this up now. Right. And they flinch and they send it in the target. But then after they've shot it, they're like, oh, okay, two alpha. Like, why didn't you just do that to begin with? Like right. you you let the stress was gone because you, you hit the primary target that you were fearing. Right. So now just you just execute it the way it is. The stress is no longer there kind right. of thing. But if you can eliminate that mindset of, oh, that's a, that's a hard target, it's a difficult target and change it into... You know how to shoot that target. Just do what you need to do. Right. Even if it takes an extra tenth of a second or two tenths of a second to settle the sights or make sure you prep the trigger properly and stuff. You know. How'd you finish it? Your first rule so, shoot. Uh, I took sixteenth wow. overall in, in single stack, um, wow. which I, I, you know, I, I didn't have anything to, to compare compare that with, but right. I was very happy about being in the top twenty. I thought yeah. I think there were maybe. I think like 160 plus single stack shooters from around wow. the world there. And, and to take 16th, uh, I was, I was pretty happy. Um, is, I mean, is the world shooting your future again? Uh, you know, it was, uh, for Thailand, but with, with everything going on and with the amount of time that I would have had to, to spend away from home and I wasn't too happy with the, the choice of venue, um, okay. as far as not from a shooting standpoint, but as a person going, like if I wanted to bring my girlfriend and my kids, like just wasn't a very good area to yeah. be spending family time if you're a single then great go to world right. shoot you know but right didn't so, want to do that so and score wasn't like hey we need to go or anything or uh they they basically asked me what i wanted to do and when i told them that uh, i was i was thinking about giving up the slot they were like that's that's fine if you choose to, to do that we're not sure there's a lot of against you for you that's for um, sure yeah and then of course there's also the the pain in the ass part of the ammo because you can't import ammo right um you know like france you could fly with ammo as long as you could just fly with ammo you had to bring someone else to be your mule to bring mm -hmm. an extra 11 pounds of ammo and stuff right. um with thailand you can't do that so uh you, you didn't even know if you were going to be making power factor if your gun was going to run or anything like that until after you got there and tested the ammo uh there was just a lot of stuff going on that um i didn't want to have to to deal with as far as the headache for it mm -hmm. and the the original plan actually was for me to go to the philippines about a week before world shoot to go train at the arms course center there mm -hmm. um get acclimated to the weather and the time change then go to thailand shoot the match and then immediately after go back to the philippines for like another four or five days and i was going to do some uh product training at right. the arms course stores there but the problem with that is that you can't get in the philippines right now unless you're vaccinated and still I, a lot now yeah wow so and you still have to wear a mask even if you're fully vaccinated you you're still required to wear a mask everywhere you go and stuff and right. so it's like well Baby's not vaccinated. Kelly's not vaccinated. I'm not. You know, it's like, well, we're not going to risk that. And then to, to fly all the way to Thailand just to shoot the match, not be able to really go anywhere because, mm -hmm. you know, you get the match hotel and you got the match. And then where else are you going to go? You know, food and stuff like that. It's all adult central. Like, it was just like, I'm, I'm, I think I'll pass on this. one. So, well, the, I mean, I might try for the next one. With a little uh, bit but, of your medical history, was that kind of the reason you didn't want to go into VAX? Or just another just personal decision altogether? Uh, so... As far as the vaccine goes for me, um, like obviously I'm fully vaccinated as far as everything else from my immunizations and stuff. This one though, like, uh, man, that's too soon. I, well, 
there's no track record. I know. That's what I'm saying. Too soon. Yeah. Like, yeah. I'm not about to inject myself with something that has no proven track record, no proven anything with the side effects. Like, I, it's right. it's not about if you want to get vaccinated, then cool. That's your choice. Yeah. No, we I'm know so much more now than yeah. we did, you know, two years ago. And it's just one of those things that people are getting it no matter what. It's yeah. just, it was just my, just a question based on, you know, I've asked that question to people before on a personal level. Is it something just, you know, religious or just something basic, just based on your history, but you just based on your history of medical and just not knowing enough about it. And you know, the other thing for me too, was like, uh, just, just from hearing about coronavirus and, and COVID-19 and all this, all variants and stuff that were coming out was like, I, I don't know anyone that's died from it. Right. You made it sound like it's been all over the news. Like, well, I should have at least had someone right. pass away from it at this point if it was as bad as it was. Right. So I, I was never really like. I think probably when the when the lockdown happened was where I was in my most like peaked level of like stress about what's going to happen with this virus and stuff like that. But right. like dude, after the after the two weeks was over, and I was just like. Yeah. Oh, the traffic's back. Great. Yeah, because yeah, Vegas, <laughs> Vegas is one of those, you know, is dependent yeah. on people being there for everything to survive. Mm -hmm. And when that stopped, you know, I remember when I went to um, SHOT Show the next year and um, it was just nuts. Yeah. How in 2021, because it wasn't, you know, people are still trying to get around doing all this other stuff and making things happen. But then it got canceled and everything else. It's just, what do you do? I mean, it's just like, wow. Yeah. So, and like, I, I, I remember I, when things became unlocked and you could go, I went and played a round of, of Texas Hold'em at one of the local casinos there just for shits and giggles one night. And yeah, like they have like the plexiglass and everything. And I was just like, Oh my God, this is ridiculous. Like yeah. this is, you know, stupid. Like, yeah. and I'm still having to wear my mask. Like this, this is really <laughs> dumb. Like what, you know? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, as far as, you know, from, from my stamp, like I, I dealt with patients that had, symptoms or whatever that required me to put on the full gown and all that kind of stuff in the right. back of me. And then I had to stay in the back of the ambulance with someone with those conditions for 20, 30 minutes while I was transporting and stuff. Right. Like I made it fine. So, right. you know, I, I'm not too worried about a cold. Right. Um, shit. We all get a cold after we're done with shot show anyway. So, yes, we do. <laughs> I, you know, <laughs> yes, the, the interesting thing too, is products comes out with a, with a, with a um, patch every year. And <laughs> after, after shot show, um, I actually had a day where I was, done like but i could I, I think i ended up sleeping for 18 hours that that day where I, mm -hmm. I started feeling like crap i went slept for 18 hours like i came down just to like eat and then went back upstairs went right back to sleep and all that kind of stuff and then after that i was fine so when everything started coming out i was like well shit i probably caught covid but i, I felt tired every, from it. every single body was different how to handle it. yeah exactly every, every, and every, i mean i'm not different. not in the best shape ever but i'm also mm -hmm. not in bad shape as far as that. So like, you know, um, working out and, and eating good. And I mean, like, like I said, I, I wasn't stuffing myself full of Twinkies and hot dogs and all that kind of stuff. Like uh -huh. I was having soup, drinking plenty of water, taking vitamins and all that kind of stuff. And I was fine after 24 hours. Um, so, I mean, I know I'm not, I'm not saying that COVID is not a disease that by any means we're not, we're issues. not saying that at all. I'm yeah, just curious on, the, on that level based on where you were I, at. See my, my whole aspect of it was entirely like, look, I think, after all was said and done, the government was going to be like, oh, shit, we kind of overreacted. Mm -hmm. But how do you go back on that without losing the trust of the public? You can't. No. So eventually it's going to come out like, oh, we, we cured it. We saved it. Or, no. or like, you know, what it seems like they're trying to do now. It's kind of like, oh, well, you know, just get the updated vaccine. It's like, oh, you see me like a flu shot? <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Because <laughs> like for me, from the medical side, like I, I don't have smallpox because I, got, right. I took the smallpox vaccine. Yes, exactly. 
But I see people that have the COVID vaccine and still get COVID. So you didn't get a vaccine. You no. got a booster shot. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so don't don't call it what exactly. it's not. It wasn't you know? as bad, but I still, you still got it. Yeah. But. And so far, the government's been great about, you know, redefining what terms mean. It's not really a vaccine. It's just oh like gosh. it's not really a recession. I don't, but. Know, I don't know what it is. It, it, it's so, that's a whole other podcast that I don't, I don't even right. want. That I don't even want to be a part of, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> going to get defunded just for bringing this shit up. We're, exactly. we're spreading disinformation. Well, I, I just, you know, I... I I'm, I'm a true man of, you know, freedom and do what you feel you need to do. And that's how, you know, I live that, you know, I live that every day. So it's just one of those things that people make their choices when they make their choices and whatever you choose, I don't care. I'm just curious. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not one to judge for sure. Yeah. Well, but I, I got control of me and that's it. Where are you at next? I mean, you, you've done, you've won a nationals before. You've done you've done all kinds of things. Where, where, well, I've placed, I've podiumed at nationals. Podium I still haven't won one. I haven't won one. Okay. So is that, um, you still, that, is that your... Your main goal, what you're at next in the shooting world, or where, well, I mean, where I you, think that's I think that's everyone's goal. Every every match I come to, I want to be the winner. Okay. Um, do I, I? I think what divisions you shooting now to be competitive? Uh, so, well, single stack was still my jam that yeah. I was doing um, with world shooting off the table. Now uh, I've kind of opened back up to the other divisions just to to shoot for fun at this point now. Okay, because um, I've I've dedicated shit, seven eight years now to yes. shooting single stack almost exclusively. Like I, I gave up shooting three guns so I could, I could focus on the pistol side only. Right. Um, and honestly, I think at this point now, uh, I, have kind of been seeing all my old buddies that I used to shoot three gun matches with all the time, still shooting three gun matches. And some of the matches that are, uh, that are being put on the ground now look like they're a ton of fun and I'm starting to miss it. Yeah. Um, I'm getting a lot of people calling me to three gun matches and AK matches. So it's kind of broadened the horizon. I, dude, at I, the same you know, time. the AK matches, I'm surprised I didn't start sooner because I, I had so much fun shooting my, my Man, NATO AK when I, I did. I'm scheduled um, to go to Clash Bash, Texas this year. Over a thousand shooters are registered mm-hmm. and over 250 people, spectators are registered. Oh, really? In a three day time frame. Jesus. Yeah. I, that grew since the last time I shot it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's going to be huge. I don't, I've never been to one before. So I'm, I'm nervously excited again to go to a different uh, environment. Yeah, it's, it's just fun as hell. And I, I think, I think the reason I also like the idea of the AK match is that like, there's only so much you can do with the AK mm-hmm. to make it accurate. Um, and yet, uh, the matches I think are, are aware of the fact of, of what one, the, the platform is capable of and then two what the shooters are because like, by bringing in AK fans, like, of course you got the competition guys, the top guys that are going mm-hmm. out and, and getting Galils yep. and, you know, whatever. Yep. And they're going to, they're going to destroy rip just like they always yep. do. But you've opened up the platform now to all these AK owners that, I mean, that, that's a huge, like cult oh, following. It's so much different too. So, so to so bring that, that, that's like, it's, it's literally bringing in a completely entire fan base mm-hmm. into the competition world. And who knows if they decide that they want to, explore some other outlaw matches where the AR is the primary platform, but they want to run with their AK, right. you know, they, they check their ego and they go like, Oh, 500 yard shot. Maybe I'll just take a shot and <laughs> take my miss, you That's know, right. whatever with it. But, exactly. um, like I, I, I think I said, so no big deal. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it will, it opens up a, a lot more people to understanding and seeing what competition shooting is about and how it's it's really based on fun like and i think that's you know one of the the hardest things for me to ever do was to get someone to come out and shoot a match with me on the local level okay because when i would introduce them to the idea and show them what competition shooting was about they'd go home they'd go on youtube and what do they see they see blake mcgez they see max michelle they see nils jonathan they Mm -hmm. see jj ricasa 
and they watch those videos and go, I can't do that. I'm not going to go out there and embarrass myself. You know, there's two different thought processes of that because I've talked to people that post a lot of videos with, uh, with USPSA and they, people want to see the normal shooter shoot. Mm -hmm. And then I hear the, the grandmaster saying, Nobody wants to watch this. They want to see the big grand. They want to see the other grandmasters shoot. So mm -hmm. there's a mix. There's a mixed feeling about that. What you're saying. So how do you? How do we blend that where we get more people? You know, is that? Is there? What would you do in that situation? I mean, because you're right. People want to see the best, but it's also becomes an intimidation factor for those people who just want to try it and say, "Well, I, I can't do what Jerry can do. I can't do what the Max can do. I don't want to." You know, I go. I don't want to embarrass myself. And that, that's a competition. Such so a scary word yeah. for, for all these A plus personalities that are running the AKs and everything else and, and pistols. And they're like, well, I'm, 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 I'm all this, but don't, don't bring that word competition around me, especially See, I, police officers. I think the, the problem is I don't think it's all A type personalities. I think the A type personalities are here. Okay. Because an A type personality watches that video and thinks, I want to learn how to do that. I want to see if I can do that. I want to push myself to it. Okay. B, C, and D. They want to either have fun or not be involved at all because they don't want the stress of, well, there's going to be 10 people watching me in my squad. I mean, and we're talking about the local level, right? right. They're afraid that they're going to show up. They're going to be laughed at. They're going to be made fun of. They're, you know, while they're missing that popper for the seventh or eighth time in a row, everyone in the back is snickering or being like, oh, my God, would this guy just fucking move on already? Right. And that's not, we all know that's, that's not, not the case the, at no, all. Not at all. Right. But. I think that mindset sets in. And then again, too, I, I, I think it's when people go and watch the videos and they go, well, I can't do that. So I'm not going to try mm -hmm. to even see. Um, as far as, you know, watching who, who to watch and stuff like I think from <laughs> I don't know if this is going to be bad or not, but uh, from from a national standpoint, as far as viewers, like when they do the live streams and stuff, You're right? Um, I do think most people want to watch the GMs shoot because that's the more entertaining side of it to watch okay. the, the top guys shoot. Uh, I think from the, the you know, for, for everyone else, they want to watch them shoot. Okay. So I almost feel like it's like, well, they should, they should air more of the regular shooters, meaning that, well, they should put me on the air. Right. You know, it's like, well, the, you just want to get your two minutes of fame <laughs> of being on the, on the, the live stream or right. whatever and whatnot. So, I mean, like, it's a hard question. That's why I asked it. Because, well, you know, it goes, there's, there's two different arguments and I, two different strong people have different arguments about that. So. Yeah. Well, and, I, and I'll say this too. It's like when, when you go to a golf tournament, for example, it's like, I mean, let's, let's be honest. Golf is not anything to watch. No. Right. But I'm watching the leaderboard. Exactly. And, and, right, and they show the, the best shots. Mm -hmm. They do. You know, when Tiger's on the ratings, on the, ratings you know, go through the roof. Yeah. He's a ratings guy. But like they will still show other golfers. Mm -hmm. But most of the time it's golfers that are either in the process of climbing their way mm -hmm. up the ladder. Or they're do, having a hell of a day. And yep, so they're being broadcast or whatever. Yep. So they're constantly highlighting the good. They're not highlighting the guy that's in 122nd right now. Right. Unless he makes a hell of a shot, in which case right. they would do a replay. But they don't go. They don't cut to him live. Right. You know, so if they, <laughs> this guy's on quadruple. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Like, oh, and, and this putts for triple both. Like, no, like you, you want to watch that because of Schadenfreude and like, yeah, man, that's, that's, that's kind of why I watch NASCAR. So, yeah, <laughs> I want to see the wreck. <laughs> but see, that's different, though. Like, you know, you're still, totally yeah, different. you know, but uh, 
Oh, and, and racing, man. That's a whole other... I, I recently got into F1 racing. Thanks thanks to Netflix. You got an F1? Uh, yeah, drive, drive I got an F1 as well, yeah. It's oh, been my gosh, man. I, that, that's another thing that now I've just been like, oh, I got I to gotta watch the practice sessions. It's I got to watch so the qualifying. I got to watch it's so, so much. It's so much fun. But. So, you know, what's next for you? Where, where you know, what what's goals, ambitions? What, you know, the, how's the industry going for you? Are you want to go up higher in the company? You know, what, what's, what's, what's all, what's your plans? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm actually pretty happy with what I'm doing right now, which is what I've been doing for years, which is talking about guns. I'm um, okay. doing the product training manager for, for Armstrong Rock Island Armory. It's, it's right. a, it's an awesome position. I mean, I literally get to go and, and, uh, teach the salespeople about why my product is, is, built the way it is and why it's priced the way it is and why it's a good option for for shooters from from beginner all the way up to grandmasters and stuff as far as options for for having a platform to shoot um but yeah, I, i'm i'm very happy with my position of course uh like i said like i i can come shoot matches mm -hmm. my schedule is open enough to do that and then when i do have to go to to work um I get to talk about guns and ammo all day long and 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 educate people um a lot of these events also have live fire days as well so it's like we'll spend a couple hours in the classroom and then we go to the range and they actually get to get hands-on and, and send some rounds down range and uh it's it's comical because some the majority of the time i go there just to work mm -hmm. i'm not there to show off i'm not there to shoot i'm not there to brag about being one on the team member or anything like that right. but there are certain events where people will eventually just like stop and be like we want to watch you Mm -hmm. Like, let me see what you do. In which case, it's just like, wow, you want to talk about pressure? Okay, cool. Um, <laughs> I talk about this gun a lot. I don't shoot it very often, but right. yeah, let's see what happens. You know, and a lot right. of it, of course, translates. If you know how to pull a trigger, you can, you can pull a trigger fairly well and all kind right. of stuff. But um, I don't know. It's just, it's an awesome position for me. I love it. Like, That's like so we discussed, cool. you know, I, I like getting in front of people. I like talking. I, I don't, I've been in training classes before where it's just been like, Okay, this gun here's a we talk, and it's very just like very so much information in your face. When I may get a point when I do my presentations to to almost like throw anecdotes and jokes and stories to keep it entertaining, so I can keep them engaged enough with me to actually right. pay attention to what I have to say next, versus just okay, let's talk about the line of Rock Island Armory. We're gonna start with the GI. This is the most cost-effective version that I've right. done, and now we have the standard, and that's the one that's my, like that's just so like, I don't care. But yes. like throwing in little bits about. You know how if if you decide to buy a rock standard, but you want to upgrade the sights and you want to upgrade the grips and stuff, then that's actually not the gun you want. You want the ultra, and here's why: like you're going to buy two hundred dollars worth of parts. This gun at the counter is going to cost you two hundred dollars more, and it's got the parts included. You know, right. it's like opening up their eyes to different aspects of stuff like that. And it's interesting because it's part of the marketing side, so it, it's not just about just talking about the gun but it's it's really talking about how do you hype people up about the gun like how do you get people excited about a 1911 when there's lord knows how many different manufacturers that make them and right. how many of them are already out there and right. people already own them or whatnot and so it's it's an interesting uh position to be in where you i guess like how do you try and reinvent the wheel and then make it entertaining enough that people go out and buy a new car like right. the wheel's the wheel but you got to convince them to buy a new car somehow so it's kind of the same thing like a 1911 is 1911 but how do you convince them to, to try right. the rock on an armory one well the uspsa just put something on the rules to talk about for next year that could be something you know with with single action or, or limited optics mm -hmm. where we can actually add optics to limited or even you know that kind of gun is that something that interests you personally uh it it does and i'll say this um I, I think I'll probably always love iron sights mm -hmm. um, up until my eyes say you don't love iron sights anymore, um, which thanks to 100 HD gold, it's going to be a while. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I, I 
really like the idea of being able to put optics on, I mean, any, personally, you know, any, any possible firearm mm -hmm. across the board, because, um, you know, when I was, when I was coming up, I was always under the impression that it's best to start with iron sights and then transition to a dot because you'll be faster with the dot than you would be with iron sights and, and all that kind of stuff. That was my, my thought process beforehand. And, and I had heard other people argue that it's actually better to start people on a red dot and then let them transition to iron sights. And I couldn't understand that until after I got into it a little bit. I like the idea, especially with um, junior shooters, right? having to explain the sight picture and what they need to accomplish. And then on top of that, make sure you prep your trigger, make sure you do a good trigger press mm -hmm. and follow through and you know all that kind of stuff. It's a lot to take in for a junior shooter versus mm -hmm. saying, do you see the dot in the window? Yes, put the dot in the center of the target. They don't have to focus on keeping the sights aligned. They just need to focus on putting the red dot in the middle of the target. So they, mm -hmm. it frees up the brain capacity for them to just focus on what's most important, which is the trigger pull. Right. And I think by allowing dots to be on firearms, that's going to be another thing that helps encourage people to give it a try. Because you put a dot on a gun, instantly, instantaneously people think they can shoot the gun better. Mm -hmm. Whether or not they can or can't is not the Perception. argument here. The confidence is there, mm -hmm. right? So they don't they don't fear target now because they've got a dot. The dot right. was in the center of the target. All I got to do is pull the trigger, kind of thing. Right. So, so I think it it's a, a a good change to to allow people to put those optics on there, and especially when you start getting to the aspect of older shooters or people with bad eyesight or something like that. Like, um, yeah. Now, granted, with that being said, I've got a, I've got a story that I can talk about here with with Jerry Michalek. Okay. So. We were on Three Gun Nation together. Um, I did that for, for two years. I did the first year on the Pro Tour. I won my flight, went to finals, and uh, somehow I got DQ'd twice in one day and still won $5,000, uh, taking third place. That's a whole story on its own. But Wow. <laughs> uh, so because I took third, um, that put me in for the next year of, of the show. And I ended up in the first flight against, uh, it was, it was Daniel Horner, Jerry Mitchell, like me as the pro. And then, and then the three amateurs and forgive me. I, I don't remember their, their guys' names. Um, so I got to spend like a day and a half with Jerry. And to me, that was like, I, I wanted to discuss things other than competition shooting with him because I think he had a lot of interesting stories. I'm sure that he, we could talk about and, and perspectives and stuff like that. And one of the things I asked him about was, you know, Jerry, after, after all these years of shooting, do you still have as much fun or has it transitioned? Has it changed? Is it, do you feel like it's more of a duty or a job versus still enjoying it and all that kind of stuff? And what he, what he mentioned to me was that how, the, the game has changed for him because his eyesight has changed. He just mm -hmm. can't see sights as, as well as he could and all that kind of stuff. And, and I don't even remember from three good nation, you shot at night under stadium lighting, right. artificial lighting. Right. And you had to shoot iron sights because everyone shot in tack optics. So we're getting ready to film the first stage. And he's, as we're having this conversation, he goes like, Oh, speaking of, I got to remember to put my shooting glasses on. Cause he's got two different prescriptions. Mm -hmm. So he's got to give his eyes a chance to change and all that kind of stuff and get adjusted. So we put them on about 20 minutes later, we start filming shoot through the stages. Um, I end up having, I think I had a miss on a clay. So I get a penalty and I, that puts me in the bottom three or yeah, I think it was bottom three for that one. And then Jerry goes through and shoots. He ends up having like a failure to neutralize on a target and a missed clay. And so going into the eliminator, which is where one person gets to move. Although the bottom three had to shoot a portion of the stage again, mm -hmm. and it was fastest time then got to move on to the next stage and the other two were eliminated. So we're shooting iron sights and artificial lighting. Jerry ends up having the slowest overall time because of his penalty. So he gets to go first. And the array was like, I want to say like 16 or 17 steel targets. 
Um, he proceeds to draw the gun, shoot down the 16 targets in like 7.2 seconds. And immediately after he's done, I just screamed out, Jerry, you're full of shit. Your eyes are fine. <laughs> you know, artificial lighting, iron sights. He's talking about the kids. And then ting, 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 right? And that watching his run and feeling like, because I, I remember they asked me in the interview, like, how do you feel going up against Horner and Jerry? And I was like, I don't know if they were expecting me to say that I was afraid or I was scared. Like I was, I was intimidated. But my answer to them was like, I'm excited. Like I get to go up against the best. Right. So this is my chance to figure out Am I there or not? Right. So I went up. Um, I ended up having the the having to go third. So Jerry goes, the the amateur goes, and then it's my turn. And walking up to the line, like I knew, I knew I had the ability. I was a grandmaster at that time, so I, I had the confidence of knowing what I had to do. Um, and I was just like, I, I just, but I do have to pull out a GM run. Like right. I've, I've got to do what GMs do here. So I, I I load up. I'm ready. The buzzer goes off. I have a good solid draw, great grip, ting, 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 ting. And then I make an A-class move mentally and say, this is going great. Pow, pow, ting, pow, pow, ting. And I just proceed to unload the rest of the magazine dry. Wow. And I still had a target left over because I was I, I lost focus on mm -hmm. what I had to do mm -hmm. by thinking, oh, this is going really good. You're having a good run. You could potentially beat Jerry. And I didn't. Right. Uh, but it was just comical that, that Jerry was talking about, well, you know, I just can't see, I, I just can't see the sights as well as I used to be able to. And then he proceeds. I, I think uh, I went back and I, I watched all the other episodes for the pistol eliminators. Mm -hmm. The next fastest time for that series, I think was 11 seconds. Right. So it wasn't even like, a, oh, an, another show, one of the pros put on another display and did it in eight seconds. And then it was nine seconds, eight seconds. Seven seconds to 11 seconds. And I was just like, Man, I should have been in flight too. <laughs> Do you think Jerry says some things to let it be a mental game for somebody else to process what he said? Like, I don't think so at all. Okay. I think, I think Jerry has, has the, the pedigree and mm -hmm. the experience to just know, like, well, I'm just going to go out and do what I need to do. Okay you go out and do what you need to do. But if you make a mistake and I don't, I win. That's cool. You know, I, like I said, I, I think Jerry is, is a very stand up guy. He's a great person to talk to. Like yes. he's, he's, he's a very nice, like he's, he's Agreed. almost, uh, like if you ever watch him at, at any of these events that I've gone to, like, uh, the PSA gatherings and stuff like that, where it's like a, it's a general public event, but their companies will send their shooters to, to, mm -hmm. to be a representative and stuff. He's, he's a guy that's, you, you could be you'll see him beelining it somewhere. He's got an appointment. He's got a meeting to yes. go somewhere. Yes. But every person that stops and asks him a question or wants to just chat with him real quick or get a picture, he's never too busy right. to do it. And I think that is is very cool. Um again, I mean we're we're not we're not rock stars. We're honestly not. You can't right. you go to Shot Show and you throw Jerry's name out. He's probably one of the only guys in the competition world that right. is probably known throughout the firearms industry for being who he is. Right. But people like Rob Latham, Nils Jonasson, you know, Todd Jarrett, all these names that like if unless you're in the competition circle, you don't recognize who they are. Right. Um, so I think Jerry's been able to transcend the that kind of boundary outside of competition shooting into the, the well, real a couple, life. World a couple of world records help as well. Yeah, so. yeah, that too. <laughs> but uh, you know, yeah, I think I think that plus um, you know, it's like I, I got didn't even realize he was that big into hunting. Right. Of course, being where he is down, I think he's in Louisiana, right? Yep. So, I mean, yep. 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 it's just a thing. But like, I that was something I never knew that he was actually into. Yep. Um, so it's kind of like if I if I if I were to ever have an opportunity to sit down with him again, that'd be another thing that I'd want to talk to him about, not about competition shooting. Because like, right. dude, tell me about your hunting experience, man. What What are some of your coolest hunts that you've been on and, right. and stuff like that? Because I want to, I really would just want to enjoy being able to chat with him 
Um, I've, I've got to shoot with Lena a lot of times too. And, and right. she's, she's great too. And I think that's, um, that's, that's, I think it's been a blessing and a curse for her having, having that kind of a, a, a name behind her is, is great. But at right. the same time, I, I, it's gotta be I, pressure. I hate to think of the shadow that she has to try and come out of, you know, it's like, it, and it's not, it's not like Jerry, I think is putting it on her, but it's just no, the, the gun industry puts it on her. It's, it's also a parent thing as well. Yeah. Cause you know, you grow up with your parents and you always want to, you see certain things about your parents and you want to try to emulate that. And sometimes it's just not possible. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's part of life. But I think, I think she's doing a great job of, of oh, being who she is. Like I, and that's, that's the hardest thing I she think. She has in, defined in her individuality amazingly well what she does for sig and everything else yeah absolutely i I, I think she's absolutely great at it so um you know i'm sure she feels some pressure from time to time but of course it's uh you know she she really shouldn't she's she's doing she's making a name for herself um and it's a name that sure it has michelik in it yeah but it also has lena in the front of it (laughs) so you know it's it's good well man well thanks so much for sharing some of your stories with me and how you got started today is there anything we missed you'd like to bring up or anything or talk about anybody any shout outs you need to give or anything uh i mean obviously uh you know my girlfriend kelly she's she's awesome she she does a lot especially with the with the two-year-old at home um you know i I have to travel for work and Mm -hmm. matches and stuff like that and she's down there holding for it so um she's she's absolutely my rock she's she's one of the reasons why i can leave and not have to worry about what's going on at home because How I know, have been together. Oh, well, we've been on and off, uh, quite a few years, but I mean, officially let's see, what are we at? Like three years now? Nice. Officially. So nice. Do you see yourself getting married one day? Uh, I was married once. Okay. Probably, it'll probably happen again. Um, but just, just right now there's, there's a lot of things going on personally that, uh, I, I need to, to well, handle first i totally understand that. but so, uh we'll, we'll, we'll see been, what happens. i've been dating for 15 years it's all good yeah <laughs> i mean I, I know the easiest way to make our lives to make a plan because yeah. you know exactly. but uh no so yeah big big shout out to her and her family um they made moving to missouri very very easy for me to do right. you know moved there two and a half years ago and, and her family was was have been very very supportive uh culture shock going on uh <sighs> culture shock yes but not in a negative way it was like Wow, I, I put my turn signal on and the person slowed down. <laughs> what the fuck? These people are nice. Yeah, like Jesus. I set my cruise control an hour ago and I haven't had to step on my brake once. Right. What the hell's going on here? <laughs> the only thing that I, I've had to adjust to, uh, well, it's not the only thing, but one of the biggest things for me was that, um, you know, in, in Vegas, 10 miles over the speed limit, you're still impeding the flow of traffic. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Missouri, five miles an hour you're fine six hours an hour you're you're mine exactly. <laughs> according to law enforcement yes, it'll get you, you know quick. so uh that that's something i learned but again that, that was something that I, I had to kind of break out of it's like uh, no one's in a rush necessarily to get anywhere there and right. i don't need to be either because like like i said i put my turn signal on people slow down i'm the country um, boy you know, yeah no it's <laughs> it's been awesome uh you know I, I just got into hunting once i moved there right. um and and you know that was another thing my parents never did um, was, was talk about hunting, obviously being anti-gun and stuff, right. but they always had stores to, to go right. buy meat. There's no reason for us to go kill an animal ourselves and stuff like that. And, right. and that's probably one of the things that, uh, I, I've learned as I got older was, was to, um, to try and not limit my kids to what they can and can't do. If they want to try something, I'm okay with them trying it because at that point they either love it or they don't, right. but at least they can say, I don't like that because they experienced it. Right. Um, and, and to wait 36 years to get into hunting and then find out that it's something that I very, very much enjoy, not just for the thrill of the hunt and, and learning about the animal and, and, you know, hunting them and, and harvesting them, but like just everything that leads up to it is, is fun. And then like the first time I, I, I killed my buck, um, last year and I 
threw them on the grill and I ate them was one of the first times that I was just like, I know where this meat has been mm-hmm. from the beginning to my plate. Mm-hmm. And that was a, a, a very nice feeling to have. Like, this is as organic as it can be. Yep. Like, anyone who wants to argue about health, it's like, well, yep. if you're buying your chicken from Walmart, then enjoy the antibiotics. Yep. <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah. but the, being the next caregiver of the Second Amendment under attack like it is, do you see yourself being a bigger advocate for that one day? Uh, you know, that, that is something I am actually trying to actively get a little bit more involved with, um, just seeing what's going on and, and we're the it. fear mongering. We're, we're the next, and, we're the next level of people that's got to carry this on yeah. to the generation. And it's, it's, it's scary how weaselly mm. the, the elites have gotten with, yeah. with everything, you know, um, and, uh, I mean, I, I just don't know. Like, I, I think at, at a certain point too, um, at least where I am, you know, I'm in a small town, uh, yeah. Kelly's dad's the assistant police chief of the Chillicothe Police Department. Uh-huh. Um, you know, it's like, I don't shit. If I was a cop right now and they told me like, Hey, Ugh. you need to go to these next 10 addresses and tell them that you're going to collect their guns. You'd be like, <laughs> next. You just told me that they got guns. <laughs> like now you're telling I me, didn't, like, I wouldn't I don't really care about your insurance and pension plan. It's time for me to walk away, <laughs> you know? And, but yeah, it, it almost makes me wonder like, uh, so in Vegas, they actually passed a law a couple years ago where it was, um, Every firearms transaction, regardless if it was through a business or private, required a background check. Right. And the law passed. But who's going to enforce it? It's what we deal with in all the different, especially states I go to for competitions and everything else. There's a lot of stuff out there. And it's, it's not enforced until it's enforced. Mm-hmm. And that's the scary part. Well, it's just so, like what happened in Colorado recently with exactly. Tuga Nationals and stuff, right? Exactly. Like, no, no one cared until it was brought to everyone. And even then, I'm, I'm sure it was probably like, oh, we're going to care now. Right. But after right. the match is over, like, no one's exactly. going to care because they're not going to know unless no. you're actively going to the range. Well, so. it's just going to take people to, you know, get up and try to get things done different in the legislature and get different things done. So we'll get there at some point. Yeah. Well, we'll and, and I think I think a lot of, of stuff, you know, it's, it's almost gotten to a point now. It seems like these politicians are, are getting so brazen. They're just kind of like, yeah, okay. yeah. So what, what are you going to do about it? Like, look at Nancy Pelosi, right? The last, the, the, the greatest clip of her coming out recently was the whole thing. Like, have you ever given your husband insider trading information to make a deal? Like, no, absolutely not. Let me push this microphone down. Bye. Go. It was like, wow, you want to talk about like a guilty yeah, ass? Yeah. I'm going out of the country now. Have fun. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. So it's a die off and be next news night, yeah. news cycle. So, and then that's what's scary, I think, is, is the, the uh, amount of distraction and turnover. Right. Like, I can't even remember what we were pissed off about two, two months ago. I know. What, what was the big thing two months ago? Can you think of what the no. big, yeah, I can't either. Not. I know, everything's got to be the next big, oh, it's like, next, it's, it's all it. driven by news cycles. It's really 24 mm-hmm. hours. It changes, but it's another story altogether as well. And yeah. It's just one of those things, but man, thank you again for sharing. Absolutely. So much with me. I'm glad we finally got you on and just wanted to sit down and get a little history about you. I think we covered a lot of things today. It's been cool. Yeah, it's, it's been a it's been a fun ride for sure. Um, yeah. I would highly suggest everyone go out and give something to try. Nice USPSA, IPSC, IDPA, whatever you got. Like, uh, just just go out and go shoot. You will not know unless you give it a try. And I don't, I can't think of anyone that's ever been like, man, I wish I spent more time watching those clips on YouTube. Yep. Everyone's like, I sh- I wish I'd gone to that match. Everybody I says, wish I, I wish I'd have done this earlier. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So exactly. you know, stop waiting. Time. We all think we got time, but uh, we don't know what's going to happen. Tomorrow, so get on it today. Very well said. <laughs> well, thank you for listening or watching this episode of Hunter's HD Gold Behind the Lens. And until next time, we'll see you at the range soon. Thanks, John. Thank you.